Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development, or CID as we call it, Beyond COVID podcast. This is a series of conversations with faculty experts on various dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID research initiative is to use lessons learned and capitalize on innovations sparked by the pandemic to address losses and reimagine global development in the post-COVID era. My name is Nika Santos, and I'm a graduate student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a CID student ambassador. This week, we are joined by Karen Dynan, former United States Assistant Secretary of the Treasury of Economic Policy and Professor of the Practice of Economics at Harvard University. I'm sitting down with her today, December 16, 2021, to discuss inclusive economic growth. Karen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nika. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm always honored to be involved in the activities of the Center for International Development, given the important work that you're doing. That is so awesome to hear. I'll start us off with our first question. As an economist with your specializations in macroeconomics, how are you thinking about inclusive economic growth? Yes, to me, inclusive growth means sustainable economic growth that is broadly shared. So it's partly about getting everyone to participate in and benefit from the economy. But for growth to be sustainable, I think we also need to consider whether we are depleting our resources and hurting our environment. I also think that for growth to be sustainable, an economy needs to have equal opportunity so that there's economic mobility for everyone. And I say that partly because as we've learned somewhat painfully over the last couple of decades, if opportunity isn't equal and there's a sense that things are rigged or things are unfair, there can be fraying of the social fabric, which in turn leads to distrust of institutions, including government and support for populist policies that are often not in the best interest of the economy. As somebody who works in the education space, that's really encouraging for me to hear that we have a lot of common goals. Uh, when I hear the word sustainable and equal opportunity, I'm glad to see that you know different sectors are on the same page about these really important issues. So at our last event with CID that you were at, You've spoken about how the pandemic has exposed weaknesses in social safety nets. What tangible changes can we make to improve these systems for the future? Well, first of all, I should say we were lucky in a way that policymakers seem to take a lesson from the experience of the Great Recession a dozen years ago when it was a decade really before the hardest hit economies had really recovered because there hadn't been enough fiscal support. And this lesson was partly why we saw much more generous fiscal packages enacted in the the COVID recession to help households, particularly those that had experienced job losses and businesses, such that we didn't get the kind of economic scarring that caused economies to really limp out of the last recession. But we shouldn't take it for granted the policymakers are going to be willing to do the same in the future. So one change we need to make is stronger automatic stabilizers that provide this kind of support when economic conditions deteriorating without policymakers having to enact the support. Beyond that, I think the pandemic recession has made a strong case for more public health spending, more paid leave so that people stay home when they're sick, and certainly greater access to decent healthcare. 
Another thing I heard you speak about before is how the pandemic is widening income gaps. High-income countries were better prepared for the crisis and are also recovering from it much faster than lower-income countries. What opportunities do you see for closing those gaps? Well, that's a really important point. The generous fiscal packages that I just referred to were mostly in rich countries because those countries have the ability to borrow lots of money at low rates to fund these packages. And it's been a very different story for poor countries that haven't had the ability to issue large amounts of government debt without seeing their borrowing costs rise sharply. So lower income countries have in fact had to take on more debt because they've had lower revenues because of the pandemic, but they certainly haven't been able to offer as much support to their households and businesses. And that's really weighed on their recoveries, both directly, and it's also a key reason why some are so behind with, with vaccines, which is another key determinant of how fast economies have been able to recover. As for the opportunities, I think it should be clear to everyone at this point that getting vaccines to these countries is important. And we should also be helping them navigate the challenges of vaccine hesitancies, given the experience that countries that have already had access to vaccines have had on that front. In terms of borrowing, you know, going back to that issue, it's, it's not just that, that these lower income countries can't finance new spending. We also have to worry that their ability to make payments on the debt they already have will deteriorate, particularly if interest rates rise, which could put them in sort of a, a doom loop. If investors think they're not going to be able to make their interest payments, then they're likely to demand even higher interest rates, which will then make it even harder for these countries to make their interest payments. So I think that the G20 and um, organizations like the IMF need to continue to think about how to provide debt relief and also how to increase that relief if conditions warrant. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. Changing gears a little, I noticed that some of your work has focused on retirees and how fiscal policy affects this group, whom I feel are not often talked about. What motivated you to do work about them? Yeah, so I, I work on retirees because the growing older population is posing challenges both for countries in terms of fiscal sustainability, but also in terms of people because there are some real economic security concerns when it comes to the older population. So the fiscal challenges are because this population is going to need income support and it's going to need healthcare. And normally, older people need more health care than younger people. In the United States, for example, we've made promises to households through our Social Security and Medicare program that we're not going to be able to fully fund 10 years from now. And other countries are facing similar challenges, given that the population is aging in most parts of the world right now. So that's a policy area that many countries need to work on and work out. But going to the issue of um, individual economic security, there are also real reasons to worry about that. So first of all, most people need to supplement whatever benefits they're getting from the government with their own saving if they want to live comfortably in retirement. And my research shows that at least prior to the pandemic, families that were heading into retirement weren't nearly as prepared financially as the generation that preceded them. 
I will say just, just one more thing that's been on my mind has been elder care. And I think that's something that, you know, really has been highlighted by the pandemic because I think one of the reasons that people who had jobs prior to the pandemic aren't re-entering the labor force is because they've got older relatives in their homes and they just don't want to take that risk exposing themselves to the virus. But elder care is it, it's it's always been a challenge, but it's going to be a big challenge as the 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 older population, the population 75 and up becomes larger and larger. And I just think it's really important that we care for these older members of society. They're very vulnerable, but it's also just really expensive for for them or their families if they're paying out-of-pocket costs or if their families have to, someone in the family has to give up a job to do the elder care. On the topic of being more inclusive when we think about economic growth, what are some other groups who you feel are underrepresented and maybe even underserved in fiscal policy? Well, so first of all, I should make the point that redistribution through the tax and transfer system, it does help. There are big disparities in after-tax incomes in most countries, but those disparities aren't nearly as big as they would be if we didn't have this redistribution. There are much bigger disparities in terms of before-tax income. That said, there are certainly, there are questions about whether we're doing enough redistribution, but there's also a problem that there are people who fall through the cracks. So that's true in rich countries like the United States. For example, in the United States, non-citizens don't have access to the same public benefits as citizens do, particularly undocumented immigrants who have very little access. But even beyond that, there are, are issues. So for example, in normal times in the United States, only about a quarter of unemployed people get unemployed benefits. And uh, when I first learned that number, I was really surprised by it. But if you dig into the details, it's because we have restrictions on who can get those benefits in terms of you know, how long they've worked and whether they can document their unemployment. But they're also just administrative hurdles that just make it hard for people to access the system. So that's an issue too. So, so that's the situation in rich countries, but I should say in, in poor countries and lower income countries, it's even kind of more important that they focus on safety nets because those countries in general don't have the kind of safety nets that we have in rich countries. You mentioned redistribution and these safety nets. Can you talk about some other ways that policymakers globally can include these underserved groups in the process of the post-COVID recovery? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So as, as I just said, the first order of business should be strengthening safety nets. But beyond that, I think policymakers around the world need to embrace finding findings from what I think is a very important literature in economics that has emerged within the last 10 to 15 years. And this literature shows that spending money on poor children and their family not only relieves hardship in the moment, but pays off over the longer run. So much of this research, I'll talk about some of the findings in a minute, but much of it has been done in the United States. But I still think, and that, that's just an issue of what what data are available, but I think the results probably apply around the world. So in particular, this literature has shown that access to high quality childcare, early childhood education, good medical care, good housing, 
adequate nutrition, that social programs that spend money in all these ways, they not only have short-term benefits for children, for example, they relieve hardship, but also you can see it showing up in better test scores and things like that. But the really interesting thing about this research is that it shows that these programs have benefits all the way through adulthood for these children. You know, these children emerge in, you know, they come into adulthood, they're more likely to have higher education, they're more likely to want to be in the labor force, they're less likely to be engaged in the criminal justice system, and, and so on. So, so it's just a, a very powerful finding that these sorts of programs are good for individual economic mobility, but they're also good for countries as a whole. And I think that's a, a lesson that, that really all countries would be well served by embracing. That's really exciting to hear. From, and just as a follow-up from what you have seen in recent years, do you think that there is a global trend of countries focusing more on the child? I think so. I think certainly in countries like the United States, we are seeing a lot more talk about investments in people. And there's a, a related literature that shows that, you know, the, the payoffs to investments done through different social programs are just really high for kids. And it's feeding into this whole appetite to do evidence-based policymaking, which tends to be a, a, a winning, you know, type of policy, you know, across the political spectrum, because everyone wants to see their money spent well. So I think the conversation has been, you can just tell from the words that people are using that kind of it is shifting what we're trying to do in, you know, with policy. And we're seeing it right now in the United States with a, with a big social investment program that's going through our Congress right now. But I think you're seeing it in the global policy conversation. Speaking of shift, following this unprecedented period in our history, how do you think your work has been shifting or has shifted over the pandemic? Well, the pandemic has kept me pretty busy just talking about what's going on in the economy and what we need to mitigate what we need to do to mitigate economic fallout from the crisis. One thing about being an economist is we are a very particularly macroeconomists, uh, we have a very countercyclical industry in that demand goes up for our services when times are bad. But I think it's, it's also just helped me think about what kinds of policies we need and what kinds of data we need to make policy effective. And I would say it's just really allowed me to grow as an economist. There was a time when we thought we were done with business cycles in rich countries. It was called the great moderation, this two-decade period that began in the 1980s when really we just weren't seeing many cycles at all in, in many economies. But I think what's happened since the end of the great moderation really has illustrated why economists need to do much more thinking about how to prevent recessions and limited the costs of recessions through effective countercyclical policy. That sounds really exciting. You've enjoyed a long, lucrative career in this field so far. So what wisdom would you like everyday people like myself to glean from the work that you have done? Well, very broadly speaking, I hope people take away the message that economics has very powerful tools that can help us understand problems in our economy 
and problems in our society more broadly, and also can help us address those problems in ways that make a real difference for people's lives. So I've talked with undergraduate students, for example, who will often say, well, they're going into the hard sciences because that's what you need to do if you want to help people and save lives. But, you know, it's been my message that you can really do that with economics as well. You know, having good policies in place can make a, a real difference for people's lives. So, so I think if there's one message, that's the message. I, I would also just say that when I engage particularly with, with young people, with students, both undergraduates and graduate students at Harvard, I really kind of try to make the case for doing some public service. It's how I've spent my career, but I just think it's a very rewarding and very important way that you can contribute to society. And I know, you know, here at the Kennedy School, we send people out into all sectors and people end up doing valuable work. But even those who are not choosing to go into the public sector right away, I always tell them that they should be open to, you know, spending a year or two working in the public sector at some point in their career. That is really awesome to hear, Karen. Before our conversation comes to a close, for our listeners out there, what are some emerging areas in promoting inclusive economic growth that we should have our eyes on and maybe devote some of our time to? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. So I, so I, have, a, I have a couple of things that, that I'm really interested in looking at. So first of all, throughout my career, I've always been interested in the importance of the financial system and also generally in financial access for economic mobility. And I just think right now, uh, over the last couple of years, there's been a really important conversation that started up around cryptocurrencies and other technologies that allow, for example, for low cost instant payments. And I think it's an interesting area. There's great promise in terms of financial inclusion and reducing the costs of remittances, for example. But I also worry there's significant potential peril. I think there's some big consumer financial protection issues around whether people really understand what they're getting involved with. And there are even kind of broader financial stability issues since things like stable coins have been, they, they, we think that they have the potential to cause runs that could be destabilizing for the economy. So that's, that's one area that I think is really interesting. The second is also a lifelong passion of mine, which is data. And we have seen an explosion of big data during the pandemic, which has been great in some ways, but you know, these, these big data sources are at least saying they're giving us a more granular perspective on what's going on in different geographies and at different points in the income distribution. So you can see why it would be really important to understanding inclusive growth. But as you start to, to dig in and look at these data, you realize that different sources are telling different stories about what's going on. And maybe that's not so surprising because often they're, they're based on or they're covering different parts of the population. And it's probably true that the providers of these data who are mostly private sector entities are cleaning up the data somehow, which is pretty standard if you're in the data production business. But I, I worry that these sources are not operating at the same 
high level of statistical integrity and, and, and statistical transparency that we have with our government statistical agencies. So I think there's, there's a, a really important conversation to be had about how we can use this very kind of important opportunity with big data, but how we can kind of improve it so that we have reliable indicators about what's going on at different points in the distribution. And I think there's real scope for public-private collaboration in this regard. Thank you so much, Karen, for sharing this message of what feels like both caution and hope for the future. I picked up a lot of interesting insights about how we serve different populations, how we promote inclusivity, not only on like a granular household level, but also how countries can do it on a macro scale. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Nika. I really enjoyed it. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's Beyond COVID initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.